This morning we're in 2 Peter chapter 3 and we left off last week in verse 9. This morning we're going to cover from verse 10, uh, actually down to just sort of the middle of verse 15. We're going to actually stop right in the middle of a verse. So we're going to uh, maybe break protocol for some of you, but uh, we're going to just cut our time right there in the middle of verse 15 and pick up and finish the remainder of that in our study next time. So if you're turned to 2 Peter 3, would you stand with me out of respect for God's word as we read our portion of scripture? Peter says in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, and blameless, and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. And Father, we just humbly ask for the help of your Holy Spirit in this time as we open the Word of God. We just pray that whatever it takes and means in each one of our lives here in this room this morning, that you would open our understanding to comprehend these scriptures as we continue to move through the book of Second Peter. We pray that every intent that was on your heart when you inspired and wrote these scriptures would be the very thing that we understand and hear in a personal and a present way this morning as we study your word. We thank you that it's alive, Lord. We pray you'd make it come to life for us and that it would speak to each one of us in a personal and a powerful way. Lord, bless your word, take away that which would hinder or distract, and we ask you to speak to us in a personal way this morning through your word, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever noticed before how it is an extremely difficult thing to sort of let go of what may seem to be sort of a, a stable thing in your current life existence to uh, kind of let go of that in order to be able to look for and maybe pursue something that may be better ahead? And that's a challenging thing, whether it's maybe a career move, if you've done that before, or maybe stepping away from a good, stable career to pursue maybe something that may not even be a, a, a guaranteed stable career path ahead, but you sort of let go of what's stable and what seems tangible and, and seems so reliable to kind of pursue and, and look towards something ahead that seems to be the right direction to move. And it's a very challenging thing to let go of something that seems so stable that you already have in your grasp and you can touch and it's it's right there in front of you to look for and to pursue something that may seem to be ahead that is better but maybe you haven't yet seen it yet you haven't yet laid hold of it yet well i think in some ways that's sort of what peter's discussing here in a spiritual sense he's talking in these very verses in this section about letting go of this present world 
everything that's tangible, the, the ground that our feet walk upon, the, the things that our eyes see physically in the temporal existence, everything that we can build and work for and hold on to. And he's, he's talking about letting go of this present world so that we can really look for and pursue that world which is yet to come. Now, remember the background of what he's discussing as we move into verse 10. He has just talked to us in chapter 3, verse 3, about being prepared how in the last days, he said there, that scoffers or mockers will come. In other words, as we draw closer to the end times and the last days on this earth, the Bible says one of the many characterizing marks is it will be an age that is marked by people who just very disrespectfully mock the things of God, people who criticize and ridicule in just rude and brazen ways, anything that's good or righteous and wholesome, rather than it be respected, instead it's put down, it's laughed at, it's scorned, and people seem to have no care or concern, but just in a very kind of coarse and disrespectful way, they mock the things of God, they mock the word of God, and those even who believe and follow what it says, saying things, he said, verse 4, kind of questioning things, well, where is the promise of Jesus' coming? I've been hearing this forever, you... Christian people say that Jesus is going to return. Well, where is he? Where's the promise of his coming? And it seems like everything just goes on as is and, and God's disconnected and maybe he's never even been involved because he doesn't even exist and everything continues on. And Peter said to us last week in verse 5, he said, the reason that happens is that people are willfully forgetting. That is, they're suppressing the truth they're ignoring what they know to be right. In fact, he told us in verse 3 that the, one of the reasons is because they just want to keep walking according to their own lusts. And people will suppress and do everything possible in their conscience to ignore the truth and the reality of what they know is right in their conscience in order to just have an excuse and a reason that I'm accountable to anyone, I don't want to have to answer to anyone, so I'll just ignore that it's all true so that I can keep living in my own sinful ways because if I should acknowledge it's true or I should finally admit that I know that that is right and the Lord will return and there is a day of judgment, well then, oh no, that means I'm going to have to give an account for the way I lived my life. And I don't want to have to do that. I want to keep living in my own sinful ways so people will dispute and ignore just to kind of pacify and suppress their own conscience what it's testifying to them. And Peter said what people forget is the very reality that this present heavens and earth, even as it was judged once before and God intervened in the days of Noah, is scheduled to one day be judged again at the coming of Christ. And he said the present heavens and earth is reserved for fire until the day of that judgment when God brings it and then he said verse 8 and 9 don't forget one thing that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day reminding us that God's measurement of time is vastly different from ours and what we consider to be a, a delay or something that's taking so long he says from God's perspective he dwells in the eternal there's an eternal realm and a temporal realm and the mistake that we so often make is we live in this temporal realm, but we forget the reality that there is coexisting an eternal realm where time is measured completely different. And what may seem like a thousand years to us is one day to the Lord. 
and what may seem in a sense you know uh, to be so long for us he says time is measured differently in the eternal existence and we have to be careful he left off saying in verse 9 thinking that God is somehow slack he's slacked off he's not going to keep his promise or he's not able to keep his promises that the Bible declares he says that's not true the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness but we saw last time he said but he's long suffering he's patient in his abundant love he's long suffering towards us despite the mockery and the disrespect and the snubbing of our noses towards the Lord and raising our fists to him and walking away from him in rebellion he says he's long suffering because he's not willing that any should perish but that all would come to repentance. It's like the parent, and if you have children or you've raised children, you understand in the heart of a parent, no, no parent enjoys disciplining or punishing their children. You know, I remember many a times, and especially when they're thinking myself, you know, try, trying to find every way possible to get them to change their behavior so that I didn't have to get Mr. Woody out. In our house, there was Mr. Woody was the wooden spoon. And everybody knew what Mr. Woody meant. In fact, it was funny on occasions when one of the girls would misbehave. Sometimes, you know, another one of the girls said, do you want me to get Mr. Woody, Daddy? You know, they could almost sense that the time is coming. Judgment is at hand. You know? I can see the way you're behaving, that you're meriting the discipline that's about. But as a parent, no parent enjoys disciplining or punishing their children. It's a part of the process, but you don't enjoy it. In fact, you try and find every way possible in your love for them to avoid having to bring discipline well listen if that's our heart as a parent God is a loving gracious father in heaven certainly it makes way more sense that God is doing everything he can to delay and to delay saying listen please turn what is it going to take how long does God have to stretch his patience and deal with the wickedness and the sinfulness of humanity trying to leave every window open for men to have a chance to repent and to turn to him before it's too late. And that's the idea that Peter is conveying here. And then he says to us in verse 10 in our text this morning, he says, but understand, though God's delaying, it's not his will that people perish and go to hell and be punished for their sins. He wants people to have an opportunity to repent and to turn to him to be saved and forgiven and go to heaven. He says, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come. As a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. Notice you have this continual indication here in verse 10. It will happen. These things will come to pass. What the Bible is trying to do here is to emphasize that what Jesus has promised and what God's word predicts is ultimately going to come to pass without fail. It's a guaranteed thing. The fact that Jesus has promised, like in John 14, where he declared, if I go away, I will come again. He's trying to say, listen, if Jesus promised it, it's going to come to pass. And what the Bible speaks of in many different places of a future judgment, that there is a coming day of judgment once again, even as there was a day of judgment in the days of Noah after long, patient delay by God. Isaiah 13, 11 says this regarding the day of the Lord. It says that God declares, I will 
punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. So regarding the promise of Jesus' coming to earth once again and regarding the Bible's predictions of a coming day of judgment, Peter says here in verse 10, it will come. It will come. It's going to come to pass. He says, the day of the Lord will come. Now, important phrase there, verse 10, the day of the Lord. We see that phrase, the day of the Lord, used in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. And important, first of all, to realize, again, we just read up in verse 9 that with the Lord, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. So when you read the day of the Lord, don't get in your mind there just a 24-hour period. It's speaking of a period of time. It's referred to as the day of the Lord because it's his day, the idea is. It's a time in which he will interrupt human history once again in a powerful, unique way and overrule with all of his authority. That term, the day of the Lord, is used in Scripture to refer to a time period that includes, honestly, many different events. It seems to span from what we would call the rapture of the church, that is the time when True believers, Christians, are caught up and taken out of this world quickly to meet the Lord Jesus in the air, and that it would carry through all the way through to the end of what we would often refer to as the kingdom age. So the day of the Lord seems to be a time period that begins at the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4, as the Bible describes, that the Lord Jesus will descend, that he won't come down and touch upon the earth, but that saints will be caught up Harpazo is the Greek snatched away that we will be instantly snatched away to meet the Lord in the air and ever be with the Lord and that the onset of the rapture of the church the Bible seems to teach and indicate that that will then bring and initiate what we often refer to then as the tribulation period a seven year period often referred to as well in the Old Testament as the time of the 70th week of Daniel a seven year period where God will uniquely work again among his chosen people the nation of Israel fulfilling one last seven year period a time in which the Bible speaks what we will see the, the rise and the operations of the Antichrist upon this earth a time which will have great cataclysmic judgments happening upon this earth all of which let me say it's my conviction and you're free to disagree if you choose to all of which I believe Christians will watch from above from the mezzanine that we will not be in the midst of that time period but there will be this seven year period called the tribulation period on this earth great cataclysmic judgments the antichrist acting upon this earth which will then at the end of that seven years culminate in what the Bible calls the second coming of Jesus Christ in which you and I Saints who've been raptured and pulled and snatched away to avoid that seven-year period of God's judgment on this earth will then return with Christ and this time he will come down, touch upon this earth and will then set up and establish his kingdom and his throne to reign from Jerusalem and will begin to rule and reign upon this earth for the next thousand years, what we often call the kingdom age or the millennium and that will then carry all the way through to the end of that thousand years, which we will then see come to pass what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment. And the scripture seems to refer to this period as the day of the Lord, periodically describing sometimes just one of those events. And sometimes it's a reference to, in a sense, to the culmination of all of those events. So it's a time that begins at the rapture. 
and the onset of the tribulation, but yet it seems to span all the way through to the end of the kingdom age and that great white throne judgment. But it's again the day of the Lord because it's an hour in time whereby it is his day. And humanity has no more control or say over anything. Jesus overrules. He steps in and interrupts human history with his supreme authority and is specifically involved in the affairs of men in a very direct and a very strong way. And regarding the day of the Lord, we read in verse 10 here, first of all, how it will come upon humanity. Take notice in our text here in verse 10. He tells us how it's going to come. He says, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come as, take note, as a thief in the night. Now, it seems like it's delaying. Where's the promise of his coming? And this seeming delay because of two reasons. First of all, God measures time differently than we do because he dwells in the eternal as well as the fact that God in his long-suffering love and patience, we read, he doesn't want people to perish. He wants people to have the opportunity to come to repentance, to turn from their sin and selfish ways and to accept his forgiveness and to embrace him as their Savior and their Lord so that they can go to heaven and be with him. Now that seeming delay really, and the appearance of delay, is really what then magnifies the suddenness of which the day of the Lord will come in. The idea here, he says, verse 10, is the day of the Lord will come as as or like unto what would be a thief in the night. The indication there, it's, it's imagery, is that the day of the Lord will happen suddenly. It'll happen very quickly. It will come in a way that it's unexpected and surprises everyone in the way it comes. It comes like or as a thief in the night would. Now, I want you to just think practically, what is the way of a thief? A thief operates by surprise, correct? If someone's going to rob your home in the night, they typically don't call you and say, uh, hi, I'm your local burglar. And I was wondering if I could schedule a, a robbery around 3 a.m. on Saturday evening and just wanted to kind of give you a heads up about that. Right? That, that's the total opposite. The, the success of a good thief, and I'm not giving you notes for doing this here, by the way. Be not misunderstood. <laughs> the success of a good thief is he operates in such a way by surprise when people are not expecting him to come. A thief operates in a way where people aren't planning for his entry and people are what? They're caught off guard by his entry and by his activity. They're surprised. They're caught off guard. Well, this is just the, the illustration or analogy the Bible gives to us of what the coming of Jesus will be like. It will be like a thief in the night. Jesus will quickly snatch or steal away his church, his bride from this earth, and it will happen in a way whereby people are astonished and surprised. The Bible says one man will be in a, in a field, one will be taken, the other left. Two will be grinding in a mill, one will be taken, the other left. Two people will be laying in a bed together, one will be taken, the other will be left. And all of a sudden, all around this planet, there will be this incredible disappearance of all these Bible-thumping Christians who talked about Jesus is going to snap, Jesus is going to get me out of here. He's coming back and he's going to take us. And all of a sudden there will be this incredible disappearance all over this planet of millions of people who profess Christ as Savior and Lord and genuinely have a relationship and they will disappear from this planet and will leave people surprised and bewildered 
on this earth, what in the world happened? Where did everybody go? How did these people disappear? And like a thief in the night, this quick, sudden, surprising event will happen, leaving others shocked and surprised. And people who did not expect or plan for that because they didn't believe it or had never heard of it will be caught off guard. And in that moment, as the day of the Lord is initiated, it will also be the onset of a very quick fast-paced time period where all of a sudden those end-time events will be set in motion and no one will begin to stop it. 1 Thessalonians 5 refers to it this way. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-4 says, Concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, Peace and safety... Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. So Paul writing to Christians says, listen, as believers, we know these things. We understand these things. We're going to say here in our text, we should be looking for, expecting these things and living in light of them, realizing that it is imminent that at any moment Jesus could snatch us out of here. At any moment, and in the moment of a twinkling of an eye, we could disappear and be in the presence of the Lord and he could draw us home to be with him. So he says, this shouldn't overtake us by surprise. Interesting, he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, for when they're saying peace and safety... Then suddenly it happens. Whenever, the idea is when everybody here on this planet is, well, well, no worries, everything's fine, just don't buy into that stuff, and we're, we're fixing our problems here on the planet. We're going to come together, we've got some really universal ideas, we'll get a global government and global economy, and, 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 and everybody here is thinking, it doesn't say there will be peace and safety. It says when they say peace and safety, hey, we, how can we bring world peace? How can we make everything safe and stable? We've got to come together universally. And he says, when that's happening, when everyone thinks they're going to solve their own problems, instantly the day of the Lord will come to pass, will leave people astonished by what's taking place. And secondly, he tells us in our verse, part of what that day of the Lord will include and accomplish in its events. He says in verse 10 here, that when the day of the Lord culminates, part of that time period will involve, it says, the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will ultimately melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Look down in verse 12, continuing to describe that coming day of God. He says, the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. We have to remember, the Bible teaches us clearly that the present heavens and earth, and again, heavens in the sense of the atmospheric heavens, the, the solar system, the stellar heavens, that those things as well as this present earth, this planet that we live upon, are all under the curse of sin as the result of the fall in the Garden of Eden. This is a glorious creation that we live in. I mean, you see certain things in creation and it's like, wow, they're beautiful. Keep in mind, this is the ruined version. Can you imagine what it would have been like or once was? This is the marred version of God's glorious creation under the curse of sin. But we have to remember, everything physically, heavens and earth on this planet in creation has been defiled. So ultimately, all physical material, the heavens and the earth, 
will ultimately be at some point discarded by God. And that must happen, the Bible says, in order to create a new heavens and earth as promised. And part of God's judgment will be the removal of what is presently physical in creation. It says here, through fire. That's how the Bible says the next cleansing of this earth will come to pass. Not through a flood, but the next time through fire. Peter, no doubt, was thinking of some of Isaiah's prophecies that said the exact same thing. Isaiah 13, regarding the day of the Lord, says this. He says, Well, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come to pass as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, hands will be limp and every man's heart will melt. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. Isaiah 34, verse 4, regarding the same thing, says, All the host of heaven will be dissolved, and the heavens will be rolled up like a scroll, and their host shall fall down as a leaf falls from the vine and fruit failing from a fig tree. So the Bible says this present physical existence of creation that's been marred by sin that one day when, when its time period is done and God's done it's just going to be rolled up God's just going to roll it up and discard it it's not going to last it's temporal that's why Peter tells us here in verse 10 describing these events he says the heavens are going to pass away with a great noise the elements are going to melt with fervent heat both the earth and everything all the works in it will be burned up he indicates this event is going to happen with a great noise and the elements burning up and exactly how such destruction is going to happen really is very interesting to consider we can speculate, we can guess. The text tells us in verse 10 here in Peter that the atmosphere and the galaxies that exist, that they are going to disappear, verse 10 it says, with a great noise. When you look at that term in the Greek there, it indicates a whistling, hissing, and crackling sound. He says as well that all of the elements will be melting. And the word elements there refers to all the material elements that exist in creation that somehow they will melt and be dissolved. In fact, two times in verse 10, as well as in verses 11 and 12, we read of the elements melting with fervent heat, and we read as well of things being dissolved, being on fire. That everything physical in creation is going to dissolve somehow by fire. Now again, we can speculate how that's going to happen, I don't think we can be dogmatic. It is interesting to notice that you do find a repeated term in verses 10 through 12 in the Greek where it's referring to the words melt and dissolved. There's a word that's used repeatedly in the original language. The term literally is best translated to loosen or to break apart or to unloosen. And I find that interesting. For example, in verse 11 where he says, since all these things will be dissolved, that could be translated since all these things will be loosened or will just simply break apart. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like atomic fission. If you think about atomic fission, the nucleus of an atom is split apart by loosening or breaking apart. Now, I, let me say this. I don't believe... Personally, my conviction, I don't believe that these things the Bible refers to here of the earth being destroyed and the elements burning with fire and, and, and heat and melting and dissolving, I don't believe that's going to come to pass by a, a nuclear attack on this planet and that's going to be the thing. And here's why, because this is the day of the Lord. 
It's not the day of man. I'm not to say there won't be nuclear exchanges at some chaotic point on our planet here. But I don't believe ultimately what God is going to do, he's going to regulate through humanity in being of This is the day of the Lord. Here's what I think very likely could come to pass. Remember last week we talked about in our study how everything that exists in creation is made up of atomic structure and how atoms in and of themselves are like a scientific wonder. Here you have an atom and the nucleus of an atom, there are all these positive charged protons floating around. And the laws of science say that like charges should repel. Like charges are supposed to push away from each other. But yet in the nucleus of an atom at the most basic level, you have all these positive protons floating around and they should, scientifically, they should blow apart. An atom at its nucleus should explode and blow apart. Not to mention that outside of the nucleus, you have all these negatively charged electrons which should be pooling the positive charges out of the nucleus of the atom. So there should constantly be atomic explosions happening and yet somehow at the most basic level of atomic structure there is cohesion and all that stuff stays together it's a wonder to scientists to this day we said last week that the best they can come up with they say there must be an invisible atomic glue and we talked last time how that's true that invisible atomic glue is god because God is causing cohesion to override the laws of natural science and the Lord is keeping everything together from loosening and breaking and falling apart at the most atomic level, the tiniest, most basic structure of the elements of life. The Lord is holding everything together. Colossians 1 says that in Jesus all things consist or hold together. The Lord is the one that's holding everything together on this planet. He's keeping your involuntary muscles operating while you're sitting here not even paying attention to it. He's keeping everything on this planet held together when it really should be blowing apart by its very atomic existence. And here then becomes the answer, I think, to the question, what's going to cause everything to dissolve or just loosen and just break apart? There's going to come in a point in time where the Lord is just going to let go. There's going to come in a point in hour where the Lord who's holding everything together is just going to say, you know what? The time has come and he's going to speak the word and he's going to loosen his preserving grip and everything is going to dissolve. It's going to blow apart. It's going to, in a sense, come apart the way that it should because he will no longer be holding it together by his sovereign authority. Notice Peter in verse 10 even speaks about not just the physical earth itself will be dissolved and burn up, but he says in verse 10, all of the works, all of the works of men that are in it will be burned. In other words, everything that we build on this planet, everything that we cherish and esteem, all the works of humanity on this planet, the Bible says the reality is that's all going to be burned up one day. It's all going to be destroyed. I know it's very, very cliche, but it's also very accurate to simply say, listen, it's all going to burn. That's biblical. It is all going to burn. Everything, everything that we work for and achieve and amass and accomplish, it's all just going to burn someday. The Bible says not only the earth itself, but all of the works in it. See, this is why Jesus declared what he did when he said this. Jesus said, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He then went on to say, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in him, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the son of man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father. See, Jesus, in light of his second coming, points to this very reality saying, listen, he says, everybody's trying to keep their own life. Everybody's trying to build a life and hang on to their life. And he says, if you build your own life and you control and hang on to your own life for dear life, he says, all you're going to do is lose it. You're going to lose everything you built and worked for for yourself because you can't keep it. It ultimately all is in and under God's control. But he says, if you lose your life, if you say, all right, Lord, I let go of my life. It doesn't belong to me anyway. You put the breath in my lungs. You're keeping my heart beating. It's really not mine anyway. To, so Lord, I let go of it. For your sake, I will let go of my life and all it involves. Jesus says, then, then you actually find real life. Because then you find eternal life. Then you find the life that he always attended for you, which, listen, is way better than any life we could build for ourselves anyway. You find his life. The right life, the best life. And Jesus says, what would it profit if a man could gain the whole world? And then he just turns around and loses his soul. And sadly, there are many people on this planet who are doing everything they can to gain everything in this world. And you know what they're doing? They're, they're just gathering up the fuel for a big bonfire. And, and Jesus says, you can work yourself to the bone, building up the biggest bonfire to come to pass. But if what is that profit if in the end you lose your soul? The one thing that really lasts, that which is eternal, that which will carry on beyond this brief life, which is just a moment and a vapor. Well, that brings Peter to his really application because of that. Verse, seven, verse 11, he says, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved... What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which, again, the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. So Peter says, look, knowing these things are going to come to pass, knowing that he is going to return, knowing that the world is going to be judged, knowing that everything physical and present existence is going to be burned and dissolved, since Jesus is coming, he says, therefore, verse 11, what manner of person ought you to be? The point he's making is simply, how should that reality affect the way that you live? Well, it should cause me to, because of that understanding, be kind of motivated to examine the way that I do live my life. Understanding those truths should cause me to, as a person, take into consideration my lifestyle and what I do with my life. It should make me step back and, and ask questions like, what should matter to me? And what shouldn't really matter to me? What things should be the priorities in my life? And what should I put less emphasis on? And what should I be less concerned over? And, and what should mean the most to you? Considering the realities of those spiritual truths, that should affect the way we live. Now, just in case you're not sure the answer to those questions... Or just in case, if you're anything like me, maybe you don't want to face the answer to those type of questions because of the conviction it might bring. No worries. Peter takes liberty to answer it for you right here in the text. 
If you don't want to face it, he says, well, then I'll help you with that. He says, verse uh, 11 there, we ought to be living in holy conduct and godliness. In other words, understanding those things should motivate us towards personal purity. Holy conduct indicates to live set apart. Set apart from the rest of this world and how the world lives in its blindness and its oblivion to what it's doing and what's ultimately coming. Set apart from sinful behavior and, and, and dedicated to God. Holy conduct. It means just set apart. It doesn't mean trying to act pious or, or self-righteous or super spiritual. I don't do this and I don't do that. No, holy conduct means you just live set apart. You're living set apart because you understand the realities of spiritual things. And yes, you dwell and exist on this planet and enjoy life to its full. But you also live set apart because you understand the realities of God and what the future holds. So you live dedicated to God in this life, he says, with godliness, which means living like our God, honoring him representing him well in holy conduct and godliness. He also tells us, secondly, that it should stir us to live expectantly. He says, verse 12, that we should be looking for, looking for and hastening the coming day of God. As you go through the text here, you'll notice that three times in the next few verses, repeatedly that phrase, if you notice when we read it, it keeps showing up, looking for, looking for. Three times the Bible keeps emphasizing this reality that we should be looking for the coming of Christ looking for his soon return not just waiting but watching watching anticipating eagerly desiring for his return and it should prompt us to be productive and effective in our spiritual life he speaks in verse 12 here that it should cause us to be not only looking for but interesting term look at it verse 12 it says and hastening the coming day of god now that's an interesting statement there hastening look what's gonna happen is going to happen regardless of humanity. However, the Bible inserts this interesting statement which almost seems to indicate can we somehow affect and influence the coming day of the Lord in some way by how we live or don't live? The language there, hastening the coming day of God, the language indicates to hurry something along, to hasten it along, to bring it to pass more quickly. Which causes me to step back as a Bible reader and to say, wait a minute, can I perhaps, can we perhaps somehow, somehow participate in hastening and, and hurrying along the coming day of the Lord? Is that in some way possible? I mean, how does that unfold? Well, in some ways, I think that is possible because through our efforts of prayer and evangelism, certainly we can bring to culmination what is the will of God upon this planet Jesus told us to pray what to pray your kingdom come every time I pray Lord come quickly your kingdom come I'm contributing to by my prayers the hastening of the coming of the Lord you know if my, if my, my one of my children says dad can you come home right away I that prompts me to be in a little more of a hurry because I know that they need me and they want me so as we pray Lord come quickly your kingdom come in some way we're contributing to what's about to happen as we are active in evangelism sharing our faith with people trying to look for opportunities to share Christ and invite people to respond to accepting Jesus as Savior so that more people will be saved and come to know him as we are evangelizing effectively that is contributing to the coming day of the Lord when you read Romans chapter 11 it speaks about how we are waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles 
The idea being the full number of Gentiles. That there is, the Bible seems to indicate a set number of Gentiles, and a Gentile is someone who is just non-Jewish by nationality. That there is a set number of people as God's actively working among the Gentiles predominantly in evangelism right now because blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So God seems to indicate there is a set number that God knows. I don't know it. You don't know it. There's a set number of people that are going to be saved on this planet before the church is raptured and the day of the Lord begins. Now, every time you lead someone to Christ... And every time someone gets saved, that, that number's coming to the closeness of where it's at. Every time I have the privilege or opportunity to lead someone to Christ, to pray with them and see them accept the Lord, there's that brief like three-second hesitation for me afterwards, like, is this it? You want to pray to receive Christ? All right. All right. You ready? Because if, if you're the one, I'm ready to blast off. And if that's you this morning, please, would you stop holding up the show? We want to get out of here. But the Bible does seem to indicate that as Christians in some way, again, I don't have a full understanding, but he says hastening the coming day of God through prayer, through evangelism. Somehow we participate in the process. It's quite an amazing thing. Here we are pilgrims and ambassadors. This is not our home. We're on foreign soil to fulfill a mission until that time is accomplished and then we go home to our resting place. See, we have to remember as Christians that everything on this earth is ultimately, it's going to be discarded and done away with. That's why he says, verse 13, everything's going to be destroyed. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, verse 13, we look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So nothing we build, amass, or accumulate now is going to last. But he says the wonderful thing is that should cause us to get more detached from this present earth and it should make our heart become more connected to that which is still to come. The Bible promises clearly that there is a dwelling place of God that is glorious, that is brand new, that is way better, that has been promised for us in the future. He says here in verse 13 that God has given us his promise of a better day of a better existence and what our Father promises He fulfills. So we should be looking expectantly for what is yet ahead, living accordingly, not looking for everything here to satisfy us or fulfill us, not settling in too comfortable on this planet and the things of this earth being our main priorities, but looking for something else. We should be looking for something that far exceeds everything that we experience here and now. He says, verse 13, we should, according to his promise to us, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Imagine, after God discards of what's defiled, he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth, the Bible says. In some way, again, I don't understand, are we going to get to witness this? Are we going to get to watch it and to experience it coming to pass? Certainly, I know we're going to dwell there because the Bible's clear about that. The Old Testament and New Testament speak of the same thing. Isaiah spoke of this in chapter 65, verse 17 and 19. He said, For behold, God declares, I create a new heavens and a new earth. 
The former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. In the book of Revelation, we read this in chapter 21. John says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. You know, that is why Peter says that we look for this new heavens and new earth and look what the verse 13 says in our text, in which righteousness dwells. He's telling us the characterizing environment of that existence is going to be righteousness. The idea of righteousness there indicates the absence of everything that's wicked and wrong and hurtful and harmful and destructive. Can you imagine the very thing that our hearts long for when everything will be right is what we're going to dwell in and experience. Imagine an existence where there's no bigotry, there's no murder, there's no cancer, there's no death, there's no violence, there's no rape, there's no pedophiles. There's no divorce courts. There's no broken families. There's no suicide. There's no police force. There's not a need for any of that because it's an environment of complete righteousness. Everything will be right forever and ever and ever. The reality of what that's going to be, everything we long for will come to pass and we'll experience it then. Peter says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things... Be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. So Peter assumes if we are looking for these things, the return of Christ, that should be an incentive in our lives. I love how in verse 14 he even says, Beloved, looking forward to these things. You know, can I ask what may seem a, a rather self-explanatory thing this morning? Are you really looking forward to those things? Of course I'm looking forward to those things. That's a dumb question. Well, let me ask this. How can we really know if we're sincerely looking forward to those things? It's not by verbal professions, that's for sure. Because I can say to my wife, I love you. I'm looking forward to spending the rest of my life with you. And and then if I sleep with another woman, does that indicate? Well, I said what I said, didn't I? No, my actions show something different. The way we can really tell if we're looking forward to those things, sincerely, genuinely, is what? It's measured by how we live. Because what you believe is how you'll behave. And the way you behave indicates what you believe. So the Bible is saying, listen, if we're looking forward to these things, that should have an effect upon our lives. So it leads me this morning as a fellow Christian to say, wow, I have to look at my life. 
Am I really living like I believe these things are going to come to pass? Am I really demonstrating that? Listen, I know it's not pleasant, and especially in American Christianity, we, we don't like self-examination. We don't like honestly searching our hearts and considering whether or not we need to repent or make adjustments. But Peter says if we're looking forward to those things, verse 14, that we should be diligent to be found by him in peace. Diligent. Now that's an interesting word for our Christian experience, isn't it? Diligent? Diligent. What do you think of when you think of a diligent worker? And he says, if we believe these things to be true, then if we're serious about that and we say it's true, then we should be serious about our commitment to Christ and our spiritual life. There should be a diligence. We should have a measure of discipline and diligence about our spiritual commitment. We shouldn't be wavering. We shouldn't be up and down and up and down and inconsistent. No, there should be a diligence about our spiritual walk with Jesus. That we're diligent about spending time with the Lord. We're diligent about worshiping the Lord. Not just when it's convenient, but no, we're diligent about worshiping the Lord, serving the Lord, making that our first priority. And not just when it's convenient. Listen, what, what employer wants to work? Says, I'll work when it's convenient. No, an employer says, no, if you work for me, I want you to be diligent. I don't want you to be inconsistent. I want you to be diligent, to pay attention, to be careful and concerned and very interested and give your absolute best effort. And the Bible says diligence. It's something that should mark our spiritual lives, especially in light of the fact, if we're looking forward to his return, then there should be a diligence. Hey, this morning, perhaps it's an opportunity to say, Lord, would you forgive? Help me, Lord. I need to be more diligent about my relationship with you. I need to take it more seriously, Lord, to live in light of the reality of your coming. And he says a reason for that is that we might, verse 14, be found by him in peace. Now, what's that mean, to be found by him in peace? The idea is this, Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, how's he going to find me? What's he going to find me doing? If he were to instantly return, what's he going to see you involved in at the moment when you don't expect it and he returns and you meet him what are your hands going to be involved in what's your heart going to be involved in how is he going to find you when he returns he says may we be found by him in peace without spot and blemish the idea is without stain and blameless that word blameless there indicates being guilty of something whereby you're blamable the idea is you're involved in something that somebody can say, hey, you are rightly to be a blame for what you're doing. You know it's wrong, and you're doing it. You have a spot in your life where you're blamable for the way that you're behaving. And today, can I encourage you in light of the fact that we do not know when Jesus is going to draw us off of this planet? Can I encourage you, if you are involved in something this morning, some mark of defilement or doing things in such a way where you are not blameless before Jesus that you would reconcile that with God this morning and not be living a double life. Trust me, I promise you, you do not want to be engaged in something that is carnal and sinful and wrong and then have Jesus show up and meet the Lord. That is not what you want to experience. Instead, you want to be found by Him in peace. The idea then to be found by Him in peace is that there's nothing that you have a sense of guilty conscience over. Hey, this morning, remember, if you're struggling with something in your life because you're living a double life as a Christian and, and you're struggling with a guilty conscience, you're not going to ever have peace in your heart. You're going to constantly be at unrest. The Bible says, there's no peace, saith the Lord, for the wicked. 
There'll be a constant sense of agitation, irritation. You will never be at rest until you're in right fellowship with God. If you need to reconcile something this morning, I strongly encourage you to do that. He says, lastly, in verse 15 there, he says, and consider that the patience, the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Again, this is what the delay is all about. That God is so patient. He suffers long with us. He's long-suffering towards us. We saw back in verse 9 that he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but all would come to repentance. Here he says, the other side of that is the same being repeated for emphasis. Consider that his long-suffering is salvation. Paul tells us in his writings, 1 Timothy 2.4, that God our Savior desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Listen, that should do two things this morning. If I'm a Christian, if you're a Christian and you already know Jesus, that should prompt us, and God help me, I'm preaching to myself, to be more engaged in evangelism and to realize I need to share Christ with people so that they're ready to meet their maker. And if you are here this morning and you have never submitted and yielded yourself to Jesus Christ and you've never experienced his salvation, listen, the Lord is delaying in his gracious, loving patience for you because he wants you to come to a place of repentance where you acknowledge, I'm, I'm not right with you, God. And, and listen, we don't make ourselves right with God. The Bible is very clear. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God and our righteousness, our best efforts are like filthy rags before God. The whole concept of salvation indicates something that we need to be saved. You can't save yourself. A savior indicates you need to be saved, which means this, you need to let somebody save you and that's Jesus. You need to let Jesus save you. You need to acknowledge you need to be saved. That's the hardest part for some people. You know, somebody's hanging off of a cliff and you're saying, just let go, give me your hand. No, 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 I want to save you. No, I'm not letting go. And how many people never come to Christ because they think, well, I'll just save myself. That doesn't happen. You can't give God your own righteousness. Your righteousness is unacceptable, but God loves you. He sent Jesus to do what needed to be done so that Jesus could be the Savior for you if you'll believe those things. You've got to believe you are sinful and you deserve hell. You've got to believe that about your condition. Because it's that that makes you say, oh my God, Jesus, save me. Save me. Wash me with your blood. Forgive my sins and give me the hope of eternal life. I surrender, Lord. Help me. Save me. I believe it and I receive it for myself.